In Mark 1 through 8, Mark, the, the gospel writer, is trying to help us, help his readers understand who is Jesus. And we saw last week that Peter got it, sort of. He saw that Jesus was the Christ, and then Jesus begins to have to tell him that this Christ, this Messiah, must die and rise again. And so, the second part of the book of Mark, from 9 to the end, it's a sort of a journey to the cross, as Jesus continues to try to help his disciples understand that he, as the Messiah, must die and will rise again. And also in this second section of the book, Mark is trying to help us, the readers of the book of Mark, to push forward in our following of Jesus Christ, calling us to follow Jesus Christ fully. And in the section that we just read this morning, there are two crucial uh, truths that, 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 that Mark is trying to help us understand from these two stories. We need to see these, and we need to grab a hold of these truths so that we push forward in following Jesus Christ more fully. So the first truth we need to grab a hold of is this, we desperately need to see the power of the kingdom of God in Jesus. We desperately need to see the power of the kingdom of God in Jesus. Take a look at verse 1, which we did not read from the chapter. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus makes that uh, sort of prediction, and six days later, we're told in verse 2, he takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain. And on this high mountain with Jesus, they see the kingdom of God come with power when Jesus is transfigured. We see this at the end of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says, Yo, Rabbi, it's really good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You sort of read this and go, well, what in the world is going on? Peter's up to his same old thing, saying stuff that makes very little sense necessarily. But the reality is we should be pretty kind to Peter. He is out of his mind with fear. Why? Well, to get a, the backstory on this, we need to go back to Exodus 33. So turn your Bibles back to Exodus 33, and this will help you understand why Peter and James and John were, um, were filled with fear because of what they were experiencing. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses is, is, is on the, the Mount Sinai. He's, uh, he just came down with the Ten Commandments earlier, and of course the people had fallen into idolatry with the golden calves. So Moses pleads for the, the, the God's people's life. And in verse 18, we, we read this. And Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, this is God, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Peter, James, and John were very familiar with this story, I'm sure. That to see the face of God, for a human being to see the face of God would be death. Why would that be? Because God is holy. God is completely righteous. God opposes sin all the time. There's an infinite gap between God and us. And what Moses was told by God, if you look at my face, if you were to see my face, Moses, as a human being by yourself, you could not survive that encounter. And so when Peter, James, and John are up on this other mountain, reminding them of the Mount Sinai where Moses was uh, you know, with God himself, and Jesus begins to, to, to shine brighter than anything uh, that they have ever seen before, And of course, later on, uh, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Well, this is similar to the Shekinah glory of God in the cloud that led Israel through the, 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 the wilderness for 40 years. And the voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, claiming that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the, the, the son of David, the, the, the co-regent with God who rules the world. And has come, (coughs) Peter, James, and John were rightly scared. That by seeing Jesus in this glorified state to realize this is God himself. And they have now seen in some sense through Jesus' transfiguration. They've seen the very face of God. And the fact that they're not dead is quite astonishing to them. Peter talks about building these tents or these booths. It's not clear what Peter is actually referring to here. It could be that Peter is is sort of saying, we need to build a tent like a tabernacle, and we'll have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in one to help us with worship. But, But see, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing his disciples the power of the kingdom and the reality that Jesus Christ is God himself. And they are deathly afraid, as they well should be. Now, Moses and Elijah exit the scene here. In verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I suspect that the disciples may not even fully understood what they just saw necessarily. They were scared because it looked like the Shekinah glory of God that you weren't able to see, and they saw it. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, this is interesting. Uh, In chapter 8, we saw last week that when Jesus said he had to die, Peter rebuked Jesus, right? Now what the disciples are doing, they're being a little bit more circumspect, but they're still questioning Jesus. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? 
In other words, in Malachi, you have this prophecy that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord when God would come and bring in righteousness and restore the earth. In some sense, I think what the disciples were saying, hey, uh, we just saw Elijah. Um, Maybe this is a precursor to the day of the Lord where you're going to come and bring righteousness and restore the world. Um, Maybe we don't need to talk so much about this death crucifixion thing. Here's what Jesus says. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What Jesus then says, instead of, uh, you know, he doesn't rebuke them so much, but he answers their question. Yes, Elijah has come. Actually, the Son of Man must come and, and die. But Elijah has already come, meaning that in some sense, Jesus is equating the ministry of John the Baptist with Elijah's ministry. And once again, Jesus reinforces the truth that he is going to have to die. And rise again in order to bring about his rule and reign on the earth. Now what is significant for us is that what we see here in the transfiguration is a vivid display of the fact that Jesus himself is God. Hebrews 1.3 talks about that Jesus is, 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 the, is the radiance uh, of the glory of God, an exact representation of God himself. And, 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 and having his body sort of display that glory that was often veiled because he was in a human body, to see this Shekinah uh, uh, cloud of the glory of God around Jesus, the voice from God saying, this is my son. In other words, he is my co-regent who is ruling the world with me because he is God. And seeing that Peter, James, and John do not, are not destroyed by this encounter, what we're seeing is that the power of the kingdom of God in Jesus is simply this. In order to restore the rule and reign of God on the earth, Jesus, who is God himself, is going to have to die for our sins, and it is his death and resurrection that allows us to have an intimate relationship with God in spite of the fact that we are sinful and God is not, in spite of the fact that normally a human being by itself looking at God face to face would perish We can have an intimate relationship with God because Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin and made it possible for us to enter into this intimate relationship with God, which is part of the main understanding of what the kingdom of God is, restoring the rule and reign of God in our own hearts by faith in this Jesus who died and rose again. Now, one of my concerns for us is that I think sometimes when we see the truth of God's word, this amazing truth, this singular truth that, uh, of, of the fact that Jesus is God, and we see that Peter, James, and John are terrified and are, and, and, and are, and are overcome by fear, and yet they live, is that we are sometimes, as one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary used to say, you know, we're not excited by the, by the truth, we're embalmed by the truth. This is an amazing reality. When you see this and and your understanding of this begins to dominate your understanding of, of who God is and what he's done for us, it's quite incredible. 
What this means is, is that what we should get from God because of our sin and because God is holy and righteous, we should be undone by coming into the presence of God. But because of what Jesus did, he is able to bridge this impossible gap between us and God, this infinite gap between us and God, because he bore our sin on himself, and, then his, and, and therefore our sins can be dealt with through Jesus, and he can give us his righteousness so that we can have an intimate relationship, not only now but forever, with a holy God that by ourselves would completely crush us and undo us. I think if all of us could get up tomorrow morning and say to ourselves, no matter what's going on in your life, and I'm not trying to diminish the trials and difficulties you may be going through, but if you got up tomorrow morning and said the truth about your situation because of this passage, what I would get apart from Christ is I would be undone by being in God's presence. I would be destroyed by being in his presence. I would be cast out of his presence. But because of Jesus, I can have an intimate relationship with the God who made me. We would all get up tomorrow morning, and if someone asked you, how are you doing today? You would say, a lot better than I deserve. You would say that, and you would believe it, and you would live it. It's astounding. It's incredible. And the question is, do you see it? The question is, do you experience this knowledge? Do, do, do you experience what it means to wake up and realize that the most important problem <coughs> that every human being has is being separated from the very God who made us? The one person in the universe that really has the power to really harm you, not only in this life, in the next life, is God himself. And if you know Christ is your Savior... You can go right into the presence of God in spite of your sin because Jesus has dealt with it and have an intimate relationship with him, not only now but forever. We are all, all of us who know Christ, are treated better than we deserve and we need to live in light of that miraculous pouring out of God's grace on our life. That's the first thing we need to see, but there's a second thing we need to see and that is this. The power of the kingdom of God flows into our weakness. We see this when Jesus comes off the mountain, right? Verse 14, they're on this mountain, Jesus shows his disciples who he is, he's God himself, he's the son. All the glory of God, Jesus has that same glory because he is God. Peter, James, and John are not destroyed because Jesus is going to die for them. They come off the mountain, and in verse 14, they came to the disciples. It was a great crowd. Their scribes are arguing with them, and it's just, it's just a, a day in the life of Jesus. Arguing, disciples running amok. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. They ran up to him and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd says, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute seizes him, he throws him down, he foams, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked her disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. This is a, a tragic scene. There's nothing like a parent having your child in massive distress, and this is massive. 
You know what they say about parents is a parent is only as happy as their un most unhappy child. In a very small way, I, I remember this very vividly. Um, I, I, all three of my kids played uh, soccer, um, and, and they all had very different responses to soccer. One of my children did not care if they won a game at all. It was all about the relationships of the people on the team. That was a parenting failure on my part. I had another child who was all in, and, and you could tell if the team won, they were excited. If the team didn't play well or he didn't play well, he was devastated. That was the correct response. No, no. I had another child who was just very poised. Whether the team won or lost, whether he played well or not, just was just steady. Didn't get too high on the wins, didn't get too low on the lows. My child who was demonstrative uh, in, in a tournament, they had a very good soccer team that year. In the fall, they played well. They were expected probably to win this end-of-the-year tournament, and they played terrible. They finished eight out of ten teams. It was a disaster. And I remember, the, you know, back then, you know, I think they probably still do this. You give a medal to everyone. Everyone's a winner, which was not what I taught in my house. You've got to face the losses, all right? But I remember they put the medal on... Uh, on, on one of my child's neck, you know, after they placed eighth out of ten teams. And it, it was like they put a, a poisonous snake on his neck, and he was just, just... And then we walked off the field, and we were walking by these trash receptacles, and my son took the metal and threw it in the trash can, and we walked to the car. And I said to myself, I'm a good father. But my poised child, who was never too up and never too down, had one of these seasons, magical seasons. They were undefeated. They were a great team. And they got shocked in the tournament on the flukiest goal by the other team. They dominated. They hit the post ten times. They couldn't score a goal to save their life. They lost the game. He looked poised. Put him in the back of the seat of the car, and I tried to drive to another soccer tournament with my other children. And... I looked in the rearview mirror, and my son was weeping. That's a soccer game. Not that important, really, in the scheme of life, but he was brokenhearted. And it broke my heart. Think about this man. All the dreams he had for his child, and now, because of some demon that he probably didn't fully understand, is now threatening his child's life, throwing him into the fire, throwing him in the water. All the hopes and dreams this, this parent had for the child, completely undone. This has been going on for years. And he comes to the disciples of Jesus, who he probably heard hey, could heal, because they did. They did cast out demons. They can't heal. Verse 29. Verse 20, excuse me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. In other words, the disciples can't heal him. He's lived with this for years. This is a broken-hearted father who's, who's just completely undone. He goes to Jesus and the situation doesn't get better. It gets worse. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. He's often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to them, if you can, 
All things are possible for one who believes. In other words, Jesus says, just believe. Trust me. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that encapsulizes the second point I, I think we need to understand is that the power of the kingdom of God flows into our weakness. You know, Jesus says, believe. And, and, the, and the man says, I believe, but then says, help my unbelief. Notice that Jesus didn't say to the father, listen, father, you got to get your act together. You've you got to start following me better. You've got to start obeying more. You've got to get your spiritual life in order. Then maybe I'll do some. No, it's simply you need to believe. You need to trust me. It's not any performance on the Father. But even saying to the Father, you need to believe, the poor Father is struggling with believing. I believe, but help my unbelief. And even with his father acknowledging his own weakness, his own smallness of faith, he's got a little bit of faith in the Jesus. He's, it's not complete. It's not perfect. It's not robust. But it is there. And on the basis of that, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. One of the things that we don't understand about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of God, flows into your weakness. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not for the people who have it all together. The kingdom of God is not uh, the rule and reign of God in your life. It's not based on how well you perform, how, how, how you obey certain commands, how you stop doing certain things. It's all about your performance. The kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God flows into those who admit they don't have it all together, who admit their weakness. <coughs> God's power and grace flow to us in our weakness. Flow to us when we admit our weakness. And in this story, however imperfectly that father's faith was, how incomplete that father's faith was, I believe, help my unbelief, should be a powerful encouragement to each of you. Because if you think that the power of the kingdom of God is, is only going to enter your life until you get your act together, guess what? You're doomed. It's over for you. It's over for me. And of course, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. Let's turn there briefly as we conclude in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is praying that this thorn in the flesh, we're not sure what that is, would go away. Three times is the answer is No. This is what God says to Paul. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
power of the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of Christ comes into our lives and flows into our weakness. And when we acknowledge our weakness, when we pray prayers like, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. At the end of the the section, we won't turn there, but the disciples actually asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus said, well, this is a demon that only comes out by prayer. So you got the interesting part of the disciples are trying to do ministry that they had done in the past, but they're not depending upon God. Why? Because they are not comfortable with the weakness that they had. They do not demonstrate the weakness by prayer, which is what prayer is. Prayer is all about saying, I can't handle my problems. You need to deal with them. And so they weren't praying about this, and then they couldn't do the ministry that God had given to them. power of God flows into our weakness. And I hope that you find this very encouraging. This is not how the rest of the world works. Okay? I don't think your company, and if, if your company does this, it will not long be a company. Okay? Says, oh, you know what? Let's take the worst interviews. Let's take the most unqualified people and promote them as high as we can. This is not how you build a winning athletic team. We're going to take the worst people who, 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 who are the least gifted soccer players to join our team. No. The whole world is about strength, powerful, accomplish, perform, do it, make it happen. And the power of the kingdom of God comes only to those who admit and understand and affirm their weaknesses and come to God with those weaknesses. What an incredible encouragement. So let me pray for us. That we would understand these truths about the kingdom of God and live out of them. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, for those of us who know Christ in this room, we desperately need to see what Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain of transfiguration that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is God himself. And we need to see that our sin makes it impossible for us on our own to approach a holy God without being destroyed, without, being, without, without dying, without being judged because of our sin and our unrighteousness, Lord. And it is only in Jesus... It's only his death and resurrection that allows us to have an intimate relationship with God. And I pray that you would help us, those of us who know Christ, to get up tomorrow morning, no matter what trials we may be facing, and be able to say, if someone asks us, how are you doing today? Way better than I deserve. Because the mercy and grace of this glorious God who goes all the way to the cross for us so that we could have an intimate relationship with him to bridge the gap between us and God is such an, an amazing outpouring of your grace and we need to be mesmerized by it. But I pray that you would also help us to understand that the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of God flows into our weakness. I pray for us to realize that sometimes God allows us to get in a desperate situation precisely so that we acknowledge our weakness and go to him. And I pray that you would help each of us also to know that even when our faith is small, we can come to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. Even if our faith is small and partial and maybe incomplete and not where it should be, 
if the object of our faith is you, you can take our admission of weakness and your power, the power of your kingdom, the power of Christ flows into our life. Help us to see that. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.